Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining is my good buddy Thomas Dranz. Thomas, what's going on, man? Oh, not much, Dmitry. Happy to have you in my space. I'm hosting this, is, this one today. This is beautiful. This is. <laughs> Thank this you. is I wish. I wish this was a, a video podcast where the listeners <laughs> yeah. could see the uh, the luxury we're living in right now. <laughs> the delightful mountain view on a on a rare sunny day in Vancouver. No, it's a uh, it's a great day for uh, for hockey and a great day to get into the Western Conference. It is, and. I can't believe I'm saying this, but we're going to talk about, like, I think arguably the most interesting slash exciting slash talked about <laughs> team of the season, the Vancouver Canucks. Oh my God. It's a sentence that I would have probably started off a podcast with last year, ironically. <laughs> and now it's it's the real deal. And and I did a couple podcasts last week where I was talking about the biggest surprises in the league. And I purposely didn't want to touch on the Canucks because I wanted to save all of my takes for this episode. <laughs> and this is exciting. You cover the team, obviously, for the Athletic Vancouver now, and you're doing a, a bang up job. And so I'm excited to really unpack this because there's so many layers to the story it's crazy the canucks are actually good maybe and you know i'm i've been waiting for the bottom to fall out uh, of a variety of things and not just the results but uh their strong underlying performance and you know at this point we're still early for 14 games into the season for the canucks but aside from strength of schedule and and Genuinely, their QOC has been low, the lowest in the league to this point. Yep. You know, but they're throttling teams on the shot clock. They are scoring goals in bunches. There are signs of legitimate high-end performance, and it's shocking. It's shocking. They're fun to watch, too. They're, you know, definitely the most fun team the Canucks have iced in 10 years, probably, since the 10-11 season. Yep. And, uh, you know, this core group of players is dynamic, uh, interesting enough that they have a chance to be, you know, in that sort of West Coast era 
exp- uh, West Coast Express era conversation for you know a memorably sightly group uh, of hockey players. Well, it's funny you bring up 2010-11. By most metrics, the Bruins and Canucks are oh, the God. two best teams in the league. I know. I saw that on MoneyPuck.com that that's the most likely Stanley Cup final matchup. Someone brought it up to me, and I, I just said, you know, we're only five weeks removed from them having 25% odds of even making the playoffs by that yeah, <laughs> same model, so I'm not getting too excited. But I do think the excitement level is something kind of worth hammering home here because I think this was a franchise that there were worse teams the past couple of years, but like just in totality um, from the highs they'd come from during the peak Sedin years to the lows of the past couple of years, like that type of a drop off and just sort of like, I don't know if it was like how we describe it. It was such a mediocrity that it felt like fans were just like so checked out oh, and yeah. just, it was so hapless and so lifeless. And it does feel like, uh, we'll get into the sustainability and the wins and losses in the production, but just the how watchable this team's been and how many things there are to cling on to for hope and for like reasons to tune in is so night and day compared to even as recently as last year that um, it does make this a story worth talking about beyond just their record early on. Absolutely. I wrote a piece in The Athletic today actually that, you know, included the line in in the over the previous four years if you were described the Canucks as offensive um, it would only be to talk about the experience of watching them right we're talking about a team that was shut out 11 more times over the past four seasons than the next closest team Uh, you know 30th in goals four per game over the last three seasons so to go from that to what we've seen over the first 15 games you know Elias Pettersson putting on a show every night uh, what Quinn Hughes can do you know and and sort of the possibility that in this new NHL, right, this undersized center and this undersized defenseman could be the template, yep. you know, potentially for a rebuilding club. Uh, you know, we're premature to sort of say that's cemented uh, for certainly, mm-hmm. but you can begin to sort of side-eye uh, a new way of sort of thinking about core pieces, and, and that's got to be exciting for Canucks fans. Well, and I think this is exciting for, for you and I. I can only speak for myself here. I don't know if you agree, but this is one of my favorite parts of the job where um, it's obviously nice to be to be right and to have stuff to look back at and be like, oh, see, I called it, or, or right, be like a, an early adopter of something. But I love when, when we're wrong and we can like, kind of like learn from it and, and when you have takes before the season or during the season and then it winds up being different because it's all a learning experience. It's the fun part of the job. It'd be boring if we just knew everything was going to happen. And so I very clearly made a lot of fun of Jim Benning of the way this team's been run, a lot of their decisions. Um, this summer, I I was critical of their moves because I thought like from an opportunity cost perspective, they didn't get nearly better enough for the price they were paying with giving up a first and some of the contracts they handed out. Uh, but there's no question that they've just blown all of those expectations out of the water. They've really rewarded all of the uh, loyalists or all the all the people that were high <laughs> on this team. And, and so I'm perfectly uh, okay and willing to take an L here and kind of recalibrate on the fly because we do only have, what, 14 games or so of this team so far, but there's a lot of stuff beyond the nine wins and the however many ridiculous goals they're scoring to suggest that this is just flat out going to be a much better team than we had any right to believe. Yeah, and you know what? I'm so fortunate here because I would have been echoing a lot of those critical comments during you know July and, and, and whatnot, but I missed it. Yeah. Right, I was muzzled yeah. through the end of July, and by the time I started formally at The Athletic, it was September 3rd, and there's just no reason to be pessimistic, generally speaking, in in the first week of September. I mean, that's just not the way to build relationships when you're coming in to be a beat writer uh, with a new team. So, Well, and the team was selling hope. 
the team was selling hope exactly. for sure. Although and most, I think all 31 teams probably do heading into the year, but it's the most optimistic time of year. And that makes it a nightmare to cover. Yeah. Right. But the, you know, I, I sort of, I wasn't pulling punches, but it wasn't the time to get deep into relitigating the Myers deal or the JT Miller trade. Yeah. Right. Which, you know, I, I mean, I, I did think at the time and, and I still sort of think that you can't readjust an evaluation of the trade based on the first 15 games, but to give up a first with where the Canucks were at, you know, I, I saw it as reckless personally. Yeah. I thought it was a huge bet. Now Miller's come in and been amazing. Yeah. The perfect fit. It, you know what? It reminds me a little bit of Mikhail Samuelson mm-hmm. when he was sort of brought in from Detroit uh, during the, you know, sort of pre peak years of that Sedin era. Yeah. And, you know, he was a 20 goal guy in Detroit, but limited minutes, right? He was a third liner there, uh, a supporting piece, but he came to Vancouver and he had multiple 30 goal seasons because his minutes went up and he had, you know, some of those things that do matter that we kind of make fun of sometimes, but they do matter in terms of that fitness level and having seen players win and, uh, you know, having been deep in the playoffs. And, and I think JT Miller has been a great fit. You know, the thing about some of what we're seeing from this Canucks team is there's still some smoke and mirrors going on. I mean, this has been such a snow day mm. for Vancouver so far this right. season that there's things working out like recasting Brandon Sutter as a sheltered scoring center. Right. And he's currently producing even strength points at a comparable rate to Sidney Crosby. I mean, I mean there's there's two, some stuff that will change. Bo- bo- great Penguins legends. <laughs> two I great mean. Penguins legends, yeah. Um, so, you know, we'll we'll see how durable this proves. They've got a nightmare November schedule here, and it yep. starts pretty quick. You know, they just played back-to-back in two different cities. Uh, they'll play sort of their... The St. Louis Blues at home on Tuesday, then they've got a back-to-back through Chicago and Winnipeg, and while I think we can expect them to ventilate both of those teams Mm -hmm. offensively, uh, you know, that's tough travel demands, and then they come back and host an afternooner on Sunday against the New Jersey Devils. I mean, that's a schedule loss, and then it just gets tougher from there. there's a lot of, like, Vegas and Nashville in there. Right, exactly. But but still, you know, they've got seven-game road trip to end the month, and then they play... Uh, just a brutal schedule right through Christmas. I mean, you know, games in quick succession against Toronto, Vegas, and San Jose again, and on and on. So, you know, there's a lot of work to run yet, but if they can continue to put in the underlying performance that they've put in, um, you know, they'll be positioned to weather sort of the slings and arrows of outrageous puck luck. Okay, well, let's let's go through both the pros and cons, because I do feel like this is an interesting exercise to kind of I guess, view all those factors and try to figure out what's real and what's not. And, and, you know, they started off the year with those two losses in Alberta. Mm-hmm. And I thought particularly in the Calgary game, it kind of looked a little bit like, oh, here we go again, yes. where they just really couldn't get going at all. And, and I think there was a lot of like reason to believe like, oh, well, they, here we go again. This is going to be the same story again. And since then, they have rattled off quite the tear. I mean, they're 9-1-2. <laughs> and two. They're outscoring teams 49-27 to 27 in that time. I mean, it's all of it is obscene. They're over four goals per game in that in that stretch. <laughs> I mean, they have seven, five-goal games. Like, all of it down going down the line is remarkable, and this looks like an offensive juggernaut. Now, what I will say, and you mentioned the easy schedule, they play the Kings twice and the Red Wings twice. <laughs> and I think those two teams are right there with Ottawa as the three worst teams in the league. Absolutely. And they're up 23-8 to eight in those four <laughs> games against those teams. So I think when wow. you have a plus-15 goal differential against the Kings and the, and the Red Wings, yeah. um, you know, the Kings are under division. They're going to play them a couple more times. But they're done with the Red Wings, unfortunately, for now on their yep. schedule. And, and so uh, I don't know if it's going to be tougher sledding moving forward. You mentioned the November schedule. There's also a lot, a lot of games there. Like they catch like the Flyers when they're still kind of jet-lagged from, right. from Europe. 
they play the Capitals the end of a Western Canada road trip. Same with the Panthers. Like, there's a lot of uh, games where they've inflated their totals. Now, I think there's a big difference to be said about a team taking advantage of the schedule and rattling, squeaking out a couple wins. Yep. And a team that is just routinely throttling, throttling, <laughs> out, not only outscoring, but so drastically outshooting. There right. were times in that California trip where they just like didn't leave the offensive zone. I mean, no. you look at the shot totals like against Anaheim and San Jose, and it was like 20 to 8 in like the first period or the start of the second. And you're just like, okay, like this is what you want to see as an indicator that even when they do play tougher teams, the bottom is not just going to completely drop out because it's not like they're like kind of hanging on for dear life and relying on their goalie to carry them through the stretch. Well, and they were early in the season, right? You remember they got outshot 16 to five in the third period by that Philadelphia team. Obviously we know Philadelphia controls play, Mm -hmm. you know, the way you or I breathe oxygen, but the Rangers outshot them by an identical margin two weeks later in New York. And then they lose the lead to that, to the Capitals. They're leading five, one in the Capitals comeback score four goals on seven shots capitals didn't actually play that well in no. the period they just sort of had one of those uh there's a lot of michael kepney from the point yeah a lot. <laughs> it's one of those one of those classic sort of uh random distribution moments where your goaltending just kind of gives out yep. and that's going to happen to every team over the course of the season the that experience though the canucks talk about it a lot right mm-hmm. like travis green plays it down well we're never looking back because he doesn't want to discuss it but the players you know especially on this california trip kept bringing it up and they kept bringing it up in the context of this league. There's so many comebacks. Now we learned from that game. And then you see that Florida game, right? The Canucks go up five, one in the first period. They outshoot the cats over the last 40 minutes. We don't see that a lot just Mm -hmm. based on the phenomenon of score effects. The same thing happened in LA. And then the same thing happened, uh, not entirely through the third period but for the first 15 minutes of the third period where the Canucks were actually out shooting the Sharks despite leading by four right and you know that's the sort of thing where you begin to look at a team that I mean maybe sort of has that has a gear that you know could help them weather um what's coming for them and what's coming for them is is a lot of really good teams in short order. Yeah, I, I don't want to. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves and call the Canucks a great team. No, they're but not. They're doing what great teams do, which is like when you play a bad team, you like you just hammer that point home <laughs> like mercilessly. Yeah. You're not like letting them off the hook. And totally. we see the teams like the Bruins do that, where it's like you're just pedal to the metal and you're just running it up on them. Well, and let's remember this is a league in which more than half the teams make the playoffs. Yeah. Like if you're just able to beat the teams you should beat, you're generally a, a low-end playoff team. Right. So, you know, I think the Canucks have shown... And, and going into the season, I think we... I, cer- I certainly expected the Canucks to be among the most improved teams in the league. Yep. Now, I thought they were maybe going to be improved in a unsustainable way in which they'd perhaps prioritize the near future a little too much. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I did think that they were going to be a team capable of improving by eight to nine points, which yep. is significant have they shown that they could be a lot better than that i think they i think they've shown enough to believe that it's possible have they necessarily changed our perspective and entered the sort of conversation as a contender yeah i don't think so no no yeah we need to the perspective here is important although obviously mm-hmm. 15 games from now if yeah. this is going but we're on coming we're coming from such a low bar yes. right that it's like wow yeah. right whereas i mean this is something i've been pointing out consistently like how many points more than the Maple Leafs do the Canucks have, right? I think it's yeah. something like two. Right. Um, in Toronto, it, in Toronto, yeah. it's like nuclear fallout, yeah. right? Like literally 
Toronto sports radio is taking place on the road. You know, <laughs> it's just savage. And then, and then, you know, Canuck sports radio right now is like elf mm-hmm. and uh, everyone's just so excited for Christmas time. But the difference between the two teams, at least both in terms of underlying and, uh, you know, bottom line performance is pretty negligible. It's just, you know, expectations are a hell of a drug. But the improvements are uh, very logical if you look at it from the perspective of they cover both angles where if you want to view hockey as sort of a team-driven game or sort of, you know, depth is very important, especially in the regular season, I think sometimes we can understate uh, the importance of, like, taking guys who shouldn't be playing regular NHL minutes and replacing them with, like, average to above-average guys, which they did across the board basically this summer. And then if you want to view it as like a superstar driven sport where the top guys do all the heavy lifting, like all what we've already seen from Elias Pedersen and Quinn Hughes in terms of the effects they have when they're on the ice. Yeah. There's a little bit of that as well. So it's like you can, depending on your preference, there's a, an interesting angle there to push of like, this is why this team is better. Yeah. I mean, having had an opportunity to watch Pedersen play and discuss hockey with him, daily on a daily basis or near the near daily basis over the past you know two months yep that that guy is insane mm-hmm. and what's funny is if you know he just won first star of the week yep. but and you know i didn't talk to him at practice today but i'm pretty confident if i went up to him and said where's your game at he would be very restrained yeah just but not because, in an annoyingly faux humble way. No, where no, no, are no. Like, oh, me. Oh. No, in a in a I'm a killer. Yeah. And my expectations for myself are actually beyond mm-hmm. that nine points in four game stretch that I just authored. Yeah. Because I missed a couple shots too many, and I think I can be more dangerous on the rush. And you know, when Hughes went out with injury, I don't think PP one was good enough, and it's on me to step that up. You yeah. know, like this is a guy who you ask him about McDavid, and he's not cowed. He's he wants to take that run at him you know he's just that guy and those are his baseline expectations for himself they're through the roof and what he can do on the ice and and the way he thinks and processes the game and the way he sort of sees everything as uh you know a challenge to work harder toward uh you know it's it's pretty stunning yep and i think we're seeing you know a lot of evidence of a player who's got you know a chance to be special and and not that and not that like all-star caliber player special, but maybe that tier above. And that's got to be exciting. Well, the crazy thing about him is like he has the clear, like obvious physical tools. And you watch of like that, like the hand eye on that goal he scored against oh, the Sharks. Yeah. Like some of the stuff he does with uh, <laughs> both the shot and the pass. It's like, okay, like on the surface, there's only a certain number of people in the world that can do that. <laughs> but I think like the psychological component of the game where like for you and I, when we watch, NHL hockey being played, especially with how fast it is in 2019. Sometimes it's like such a blur and it's like disorienting. Like right. the puck's just bouncing around. You're like, that's got to be like a lucky bounce because it's like, there's no way someone could have orchestrated that. And I, I do genuinely believe I'm, I'm, Pedersen's won me over so much that like it could take like the flukiest random bounce. And I'd be like, <laughs> meant Pedersen it. meant to do well, that because he saw that happening in advance and the game is going so slowly for so, him. So, you know, I was, I was sort of laughing in the press box as, you know, joking about how I'd never seen a rush deflection before. Right. And so after the game, Ian McIntyre goes up to, Ian, Sportsnet's Ian McIntyre goes up to 
Elias Pettersson, and he says, do they have baseball in Sweden? And Pettersson kind of laughs at him and says, no, you know, but I played a lot of badminton in the summer. So I sort of share that quote on Twitter, and someone tweets a video that was shot by Afton Bladet, like a yep. you know notable Swedish publication. And it's like a three-minute video of Pedersen playing badminton with like one of their photojournalists. Yeah. And he's just ruthlessly schooling him for three minutes on the badminton court. And I was just losing it. I just couldn't believe like um, that there were receipts of the hand-eye work that Pedersen had put in over the summer in some sort of like Swedish badminton lodge. Well, and you know what is the most <laughs> impressive play he's, done, he's had this year? And there's so many to choose from already. But I, I think it didn't get enough pub was that one... Brock Besser power play goal against the Kings where oh, man. He, okay, he like he puts all of it that he can into a shot that just like destroys Alec Martinez's soul basically to the point where Martinez looks like he literally wants to just leave the ice because <laughs> of what just happened. And then like they get a lucky bouncer, the puck goes back to the point and it comes right back to him and he like loads up like he's gonna take another shot. And you can like see like everyone in the Kings is bracing themselves for it. And he just like does this cross ice pass through yeah. traffic on Brock Bester's tape. And it's an easy goal for him because everyone's committed to the shot. And I don't remember what forward it was, but what's so funny about it is the forward who is, you know, sort of closest to Pedersen in that situation, right? Knows that the D has already blocked a shot and isn't going to get in the lane. So, th- so he already is cheating on the flanker, basically, on the flank side to try and sort of get a stick at least in the lane. When the puck comes back to PD, he sells out Mm -hmm. for the block shot. He's trying to get his stick in the lane. And so he sort of does that lean and his feet are wide apart. And Pedersen ends up putting the pass right through his feet. Like, without the threat of the shot, that space is just not there. And, yeah, no, uh, you know what? I agree with you. I actually think that was easily his best play of the year to this juncture. And, um, yeah, to this juncture is important because there's going to be more. Well, you know, because one thing, one thing you notice, um, is that there's, well, there's two things. One is on the power play, the Canucks are dropping on their neutral zone set, um, to Miller and Bo Horvat, which, you know, leaves Petey sort of waiting at the left wing and his body language tells that he, at least, my perception of his body language is that he thinks he should probably be getting the drop, <laughs> but he, so he's not entering the zone with a ton of speed right now. And additionally at five on five, I, th- I think teams aren't letting him mm. uh, get that speed. I think that's been a real focus and the Canucks are going to have to find ways of figuring that out because when Pedersen has a full head of steam, as, as we saw in his rookie season, that's when he starts sort of uh, doing magic pixie dust kind of things. And, Currently, it's like he's produced all these points, but he's done it in this more mature, controlling way on a line that's you know controlling sixty five percent of shot attempts, which is awesome. But but he hasn't been producing it with the same level of you know um, dynamism off the rush that he did in his rookie season. On the whole, that's probably a good thing for the Canucks. It suggests that he, this is a more sustainable yep. sort of PD. But uh, I do think that there's a chance that he can graft sort of both together and, and you know, look out if that happens. Well, you know what's interesting? You and I were talking before we went on the air about um, sort of because the percentages are so sky high. And, and I remember we had this conversation with like during Henrik Sedin's heyday, for example, in terms of like, a player's ability to create constantly create better looks for his teammates and therefore have a higher on-ice shooting percentage or even personal shooting percentage than you'd expect from your average NHL player just because they're that good. And, you know, I've been burned a little bit recently because, like, I was all in on, on the Patrick Latine experience. Like, I was like, 
I know people don't shoot 17, 18, 19% because we just know time and time again, these guys come back down at 11, 12%. But his shot was so good for like a year and a half, even two, two and a half years that I was like, all right, maybe he's just like, he's the next Kovalchuk or the next stamp goes during his prime. And then because everyone knows about that shot, teams start overplaying it and you start decreasing some of those looks. Um, and that's happened with him. And now he's back to like league average, basically. With Pedersen, there's no real way to defend him because we see the shots where he just goes bar down if you give him time and he's going to pick your, that corner and beat a goalie cleanly, which like 10 people in the world can basically do. But if you overplay that, he will gladly make that type of a Brock Besser, pass the Brock Besser, which we're talking about. And so like if you're an opposing defense and you're trying to game plan or you're opposing defenseman and you're trying to play this guy positionally, I don't really know what the answer is beyond like hoping he settles for a blow look opportunity, which he doesn't really do because he does think the game at a higher level to go along with those physical skills. Yeah. And you know, the smartest thing that the Canucks have done is in my view anyway, is that they've got both Brock and Elias Pettersson switching sides on the power play. So sometimes they'll be on their one timer side. So for Petey, that would be at the, you know, right half wall <laughs> of a one, three, one. And sometimes he's on his downhill side, which would be the left side of the one, three, one. And, you know, against the Kings, for example, he scores a, you know, absolute bar down laser. And he did that from his downhill side on the left side half wall. The play that we're talking about, the cross seam to Besser that was opened up by his one-timer threat, that was him at the right side half yep. wall. And that sort of versatility there, I think also helps protect it because this is a guy who can take two steps and sort of, you know, step into just a ridiculous wrist shot. But he's also got a, you know, absurd one-timer yep. that you know, he can, he can uncork and that the Canucks could, if they decided to build, you know, their whole power play around. Now he probably is not a high enough volume shooter for that. Like, yeah. I just don't think he has the instincts right. to do it. Cause he's, um, you know, a little bit of a make the right play kind of yeah. efficiency guy, but right. you know, it is a, it is a excellent weapon and it's one thing that, you know, will make him a little bit more resistant to the type of book building that you're talking yeah. about that that's impacted Lion A. Uh, you know, it's just a credit to what a special player he's already shown himself to be. And he, he doesn't turn 21 until later this month. I yeah. mean, it's pretty ridiculous what he's managed to do. He's He's got a real chance to be among the game's best. And, you know, from a reporter covering the team side, I mean, great. Like, it's just awesome to have a chance to you know, potentially help tell those stories because those are the stories you want to tell. You don't want to tell the story of another failed rebuild, right? You yep. want to tell the story about what makes this insane person so effective. Well, yeah, and on the topic of versatility and sort of his unpredictability and, and shooting percentage and how you can maintain it moving forward, um, I don't know how you feel about this, but, you know, true like true shooting talent is certainly one thing. And, and I think it's fair to say that not every player a shot from two different players is going to lead to different results, even though we expect them to hover around a certain range. But I think sometimes we don't talk about like what is baked into that shooting percentage. And for me, a lot of it, as I've thought about this more over the years is like the ability to get to those spots, because like once teams have tape on you and know your tendencies or know where you're going to shoot from, what you're going to do, they can kind of play you a certain way to take you out of that comfort zone. And then if you can't beat them in different ways, it's going to be tough for you to repeat that from one year where you're shooting 20% and you're scoring a bunch of goals to the next year when they're keying in on that certain area of the ice. And that's for, for Liney, I think that's been the challenge where everyone knows where that shot's coming from and what he wants to do. And he doesn't have nearly the playmaking element where Peter Pedersen does. So for opposing teams to try and slow him down, 
I do believe he can be a well, well above average shooter moving forward just because it's kind of impossible to move him away from those spots because that means you're just leaving something else wide open, which he, as we said, he'll gladly make that play because he doesn't want to shoot it four or five times a game. Yeah, you know, I think these, like the relatively fixed nature of save percentage Mm -hmm. in the contemporary game was a real light, light bulb moment for me when I first began sort of understanding and looking into hockey analytics. Like one thing that I always found really powerful was that over a large enough sample of five on five ice time, something like 90% of the league is going to fall within a range of seven to 8.5%. And at the very bottom end, you're going to have some guys who have some muffins, but mostly you're going to have guys who, you know, dump and change and are counted on to play responsible games. I think of a Travis Moen as an example, you know, from a few years ago. I think that's the first time anyone has ever said his name on this podcast. He's a fascinating uh, (laughs) analytics guy. So I'm, I'm surprised by that, you know, and then on the top end, you've generally had guys like Sidney Crosby who have just ridiculous hand eye and can finish in all sorts of weird ways, but also guys like the Sedin twins and guys like Stamkos, who is, Clearly, and still is, the NHL's premier marksman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just the product of goalies sort of winning the overall war against shooters. And it's sort of coming around a little bit uh, here, but not a ton. And as a result, you know, PDO, for example, has so much value uh, just as something to be conscious of. And when you look at a guy like Pedersen and and just to sort of finish off the thought with this, you know, if I had a farm, I would bet it on him being multiple standard deviations above mean shooting percentage over the next five years. And, you know, there's a few players like that around the league and, you know, sort of the understanding of that and then using sort of qualitative information to describe it. Uh, that's sort of where I think the job is as a beat reporter or a hockey analyst gets really exciting and, and fun to read. Uh, so, you know, it should be a lot of fun to cover and uh, it should be a lot of fun for fans to watch. Sponsoring today's episode of the Hockey PDO cast is SeatGeek. SeatGeek is making getting tickets to events easier than ever before. They've built the fastest way to find tickets so you can stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it. So why is SeatGeek better than all the other websites or apps out there? Here's the deal. SeatGeek is guaranteed to save you time, money, and effort. They're going to do that by doing all the work for you. They scour the web. They pull together millions of tickets from all over the web into one place. Then they rate each of those on a scale of 1 to 10, and they display it on an interactive seat map so that you can visually kind of see what you're working with where tickets are available, where they're going to be located. And they actually break down the details uh, by indicating good deals with green dots and overpriced ones with red dots, so you know what to stay away from. Plus, every purchase with SeatGeek is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets with confidence, knowing that what you're paying for is what you're going to get. And that's huge because when you're shopping online, it's always a little sketchy. You never know if you're going to show up to the event and wind up finding out that you were swindled, that you got fake tickets or that you overpaid. You don't have to worry about any of that because SeatGeek is tried and true to get you exactly what you're paying for. I've got the Seeky cap on my phone and I found time and time again, it is by far the fastest and easiest way to find tickets. Whether it's a sporting event, I mean, hockey, basketball, football, you name it, whether it's a concert, whether it is a stand-up show, whether it's theater, if the event has tickets available, SeatGeek's going to have them. And as if that, that wasn't enough, if you're still kind of on the fence and not sure whether you should give SeatGeek a shot, Here's the ultimate sweetener for you. 
SeatGeek's going to give you $10 off your first purchase with them just for listening to today's episode of the Hockey PDO Cast. All you need to do is let them know we sent you, and you can do that by using our promo code. So download the SeatGeek app today and use the promo code PDO for $10 off your first purchase. That's promo code PDO for $10 off your first purchase. Now let's get back to the show. So here's an, like a hidden element to us seeing guys uh, being – like the league's getting younger. Players are getting more skilled. And coaches even are sort of softening up the idea that you're going to let players experiment and try new stuff because the positives outweigh the negatives, right? And that's generally speaking. There's certainly coaches out there that will punish a player for making a mistake because he tried to do too much. No doubt about it. But we see Svechnikov's lacrosse goal. We see Matthew Kachuk's absolutely obscene, which I actually thought was higher degree of difficulty oh so sick uh you know you see guys like matthews forsberg even Pedersen shooting from these like wild angles and getting still peak velocity and peak accuracy on these shots and i think there's that's going to be something fascinating to follow like the trickle down effect on shooting and shape percentages where goalies for a while you kind of knew what to expect from a shooter it's like they can only they have only so many tricks up their sleeve and now it's much tougher to be set and know where the puck is coming from if guys are doing all these crazy things that we've never really seen before. Yeah, and you know, it's also that these players, I mean, this was a Ryan Miller thing from from back in the day, but Ryan Miller talked about when he was in Vancouver and the Canucks were integrating Jared McCann and uh, Jake Furtan into the lineup, but yep. he talked about McCann's wrist shot, right? And, and McCann's never really figured out the accuracy of his wrist shot right. but the velocity that he can get on a quick release is is pretty ridiculous and you know miller used to talk about how shots from players have signatures and you're able to sort of read them and for a guy who's been around a lot and seen a lot of changes in the game he finds that kids who grew up shooting with composite sticks mm. have these unique hard to read shot whispers that he always found really challenging and and that he sort of enjoyed practicing even just against Vertanen and McCann because he thought it maybe let him sort of see more reps against players who sort of fit that mold. And that's always sort of stuck with me. And, you know, we have seen shooting percentage around the league go up a bit. We have begun to see, I mean, we're not in the 80s territory yet. We're not even in early 90s territory yet. But the, you know, average shooting percent, I mean, we now see an average shooting team shoot eight and a half. Uh, You know, where it was closer to seven and a half even 10 years ago. And, you know, that's good for the game at the end of the day. And it'll be it'll be sort of fun to continue to track and and fun to monitor. But I do think what's exciting about it is how many different ways there are to skin this cat and how, you know, guys like Sean Monaghan drive shooting percentage typically by just being beasts five feet out yeah and a guy like Gaudreau can do something similar but he does it by being just a ridiculous shifty playmaker and having a deceptive backhand and Patterson does it with efficiency and Crosby does it with hand eye and Stamkos does it with you know unrivaled marksmanship I mean that's that's sort of the space where you know people say oh numbers take the fun out of the game it's like I, I actually think when you look into oh, it they tell such an amazing story right yeah. and when you and when you sort of look into it and think about um, you know all the different ways that guys are achieving these outlier results uh, you know, there's this descriptive space um, that for me anyway is is sort of where the fun and the joy and the, you know, uh, amazement really sort of lands. Well, and that's like, I think that's like the, there's two ways where a player's greatness reaches like the upper echelon for me. One is like the guys like Crosby, they can, anyone that plays with them is going to have 
just amazing numbers because yeah. he will drag them to it, right? And we've seen Connor McDavid do that as well with Alex Chasson and Zach Cassian and so on and so forth. <laughs> yeah. The other one is guys who like the opposing team knows exactly what you're going to do. It's like the Larry Bird and you're just like calling your shot. You're just right. going to do it because you're that great. And that's like the Alex Ovechkin where it's like, <laughs> yeah, he just does the same thing, but no one can physically stop it. And he's just <laughs> going to keep doing it. He's been doing it for over a decade now. And, and so I'm really fascinated in like how different players are managed to sustain their effectiveness. And Monaghan's a great example of Mark Shifley. There's like guys right. who are like, somehow always have these 15, 16% shooting percentages, even yeah. though they're not like your traditional sniper like Stamkos, but they just get to these areas. And a lot of it is playing with great playmakers like Wheeler and Goodrow who can get them to puck in those spots. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's uh, it's it's fun, and it's been fun to watch. And hopefully, hopefully this sort of new offensive calibration of the league continues. I think these comebacks are good. I think these, you know, skilled players sort of shining through is good. You know, I think speed on the back end is good. I think a lack of fighting is good. Mm. I mean, you know, the NHL may have been behind the NFL and the NBA. You know, obviously we know what the NFL has done in terms of protecting quarterbacks and sort of massaging the rules over the course of a generation to incentivize the passing game. And it's obviously improved the product, you know, a significant exponentially, exponentially improved the product. And similarly with the NBA and handshaking rules and what's that what that's done in terms of opening up uh, the game. You know, the NBA has got some issues potentially with too many three point shots. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, like what they've done to open up the game has been good for the sport. And the personalities kind of take it from there. (laughs) In the NBA's case, the NHL maybe was a little bit behind the eight ball, but in terms of where the game has gone and how good the product looks to me in terms of the speed yep. and and how that sort of results in a playoff product that is among the best in pro sports entertainment you know i think there's you know a lot to be said for um belatedly the league has made some pretty significant strides or at least notable strides and you know just as a game center live junkie i've been enjoying it the game's in a great spot, no doubt about it. When I was doing my watchability rankings before the season, and I had the Canucks at 22, and <laughs> obviously they'd be higher now, although I thought at the time that was even a generous ranking that was just like a lot of respect being paid to Elias Pettersson's greatness. <laughs> but um, there was like no teams where they had like no reason to watch. Even like Ottawa, it's like, I want to watch Thomas Shabbat and Brady Kachuk. Yeah. Uh, Detroit, I want to watch... Anthony Mantha and Dylan Markin. Like every team mm-hmm. has at least a couple guys. So the league's in a great spot from a talent perspective. Now, this might be just like a random first month thing that doesn't actually will either normalize or isn't something that like there's anything concrete to take from. But I've been thinking about this because it ties to the Canucks. Well, we were talking about the Canucks early schedule where they've played all these bad teams. And we were talking about this a bit before as well. There's like there aren't that very many great teams right now. Like no. I think Boston, I'm very comfortable saying they're really, really good. Absolutely. Washington as well. Um, you know, Vegas, there's like a handful of teams, but beyond that, who are some of the teams that a good dominant Canucks victory against them would even like change this narrative of an easy schedule? Like we saw them, that was an impressive come from behind win in St. Louis, for example, although now St. Louis doesn't even have Tarasenko. So, they play them next, but if they beat them, is that like, I know they're the defending champions, but I don't think it's like, holy crap, this Canucks team's for real because they beat St. Louis. No. Like, there's so few teams as like a sort of barometer or litmus test for being good, you need to beat them, which makes it like, there's it's good because there's a lot of unpredictability and variability in the results and we don't know what's going to happen, but it is also like tricky to sort of look at a team's schedule because it does feel like a lot of these teams are 
playing worse than we expected from them. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I still think Toronto's legitimate. Yeah. I still think Tampa Bay is legitimate. Uh, you know, in the Pacific, I think you're right, though. I think Vegas is the surest bet of the group, partly because that top six is just clearly the best in hockey for me. Yeah. And, but even then, you know, I sort of look at a blue line and think that there's some issues there. Um, Calgary, I think, quietly sort of had a tough summer, mm. and I don't think they're quite what they were uh, a year ago. Um, and then the Central, I mean, I guess I look at Nashville as a really potent offensive team that's sort of reinvented themselves, uh, I suppose, by swapping out Subban for Duchesne. And, you know, they're, I think they're the top offensive team in, in hockey. So I, I'd maybe put them there. But you're right. It's not like a very stratified, there's seven contenders and yeah. everyone's below them, or five contenders and everyone's below them. I think there's, you know, four or five proper elite teams another three or four that could get there yeah. uh, or, or will get there once sort of uh, they their percentage is normalized yeah. and they have a chance to feel their way through, you know, 30 plus games. And then, you know, beneath that, you have sort of the fringe playoff teams and it looks a lot more open than I would have expected. Like just looking at the Pacific Division, for example, mm-hmm. you know, Arizona, I mean, I don't think they're going to be able to score enough necessarily, but defensively, I think they're lights out yeah the benchmark they have to clear offensively to like win a lot of these games is <laughs> right. so low for them. so low yeah. and you know i mean they've yeah i think they've got a real shot at at making some noise and you know san jose's struggles i, I mean i on the one hand there's just too much talent there that they're, yeah. they're gonna figure it out but on the other you know i just watched that game live on saturday Ooh. and they were a mess so you know, and and you don't expect their goaltending to sort of lead the way no. and bailing them out from that. So, you know, if San Jose falls out, for example, if Dallas falls out, for example, uh, if Winnipeg falls out, I mean, then you're looking at sort of three playoff spots that, you know, three playoff teams from last year that maybe, you know, there's open season on those spots. And, you know, there's a lot of teams with with that sort of level of ambition and, and level of talent to maybe make it happen. Arizona, Vancouver, uh, sort of foremost among them, but Edmonton too. Yep. I think, you know, they've clearly hired the right guy f- to grind out wins with an undermanned roster. Got to give Dave Tippett a ton of credit. And, you know, the central remains a bit of a knife fight, even though we haven't seen sort of that one team kind of emerge or seize the mantle as the team to beat there. Yeah. So when the reason why I was so critical of, in bringing this back to the Canucks at the start of the year was, I just thought the price they paid to miss the playoffs again right. was just like I couldn't re- I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't recon- reconcile that totally. like giving up a future first signing a guy like Tyler Myers for f- six years or whatever oh, beyond yeah. this year I was just like I just don't see how the math there checks out and part of my calculus for that was thinking even if I, I was like Calgary didn't have a great summer I just thought like they had so much room to drop from last year to still be the third best team in the yep. Pacific I. Vegas was going to be great, and I expected San Jose to once again be good. All depth concerns aside, all goaltending stuff, I just thought if you have Burns and Carlson out there pretty much at all times, and then you have that yeah. top six of forwards, uh, you're going to score enough you. goals to yeah. cover for a lot of those warts. And so far, the door has been wide open where even in the central with Winnipeg taking a massive step back with um, Dallas not generating nearly enough offense and their goaltending not being as good as it was last year, it's not a lock that there's even going to be five central teams to make the playoffs. No. So it's like now the door is wide open, not only in the Pacific, but in the wildcard race out West as well. And so, I mean, good on the Canucks for sort of uh, stepping into this void, but 
it it does speak to that sort of like unpredictability where I really did not see, especially San Jose. Um, like you saw, you you got to see them recently, as you said, and I've been following like their just underlying performance and there's something weird going on there. I don't, it's easy to be like, Oh, Pete DeBoer needs to go. Everyone likes to blame the coach, but it's like, yeah. who are you going to bring in? That's going to suddenly turn Mark Edward Vlasic into prime Mark Edward Vlasic. Like it's, there's a lot of players playing minutes on that team where it's like, this isn't nearly the team that we thought they were going to be. Also Pete DeBoer. I mean, let's not forget that, you know, a lot of the, things that Nashville and Pittsburgh especially have sort of excelled at over the last five years, just in terms of like challenging teams with verticality, sort of not necessarily prizing possession across zones so much as pressure across across zones and sort of skating onto the pucks with speed and really focusing on that part of the game. You know, a lot of that is Pete DeBoer hockey, right? Like that style of game really was popularized by him earlier this decade and and it's won a lot of cups it's sort of changed a lot of how teams are constructed i mean you get credit for that from my perspective anyway and i mean i think he's a you know certainly a competent above average nhl coach but you know what what it's so hard to figure out what's going on there i mean i look at logan couture who you know i could i could barely tell you that he played on saturday night he has one goal Hmm. uh in his first year as sharks captain i mean you know so many great players on that team, guys like Timo Meyer, yeah. who were just quiet. You know, it didn't feel like they were, they didn't feel like they had a chance of impacting the game. And, you know, I look at that team and I just don't see, I just don't see the level of dynamism, or at least I didn't see it live. But then, you know, earlier in the day, on that Saturday, I pulled up the Winnipeg game that yeah. they played, yeah, where they, they had 50, 50 plus, plus shots, yeah. right? And, you know, it was just like wave after wave of white and teal, right? Yeah. Like they looked terrifying. I thought, oh boy, I mean, if there's a game where the Canucks are going to come back to earth, it's this yeah. one. And quite the opposite happened. I mean, they were dominated by Vancouver. I wonder how much of it is like they are a pretty old team with a lot of miles on them and maybe yeah. play, and they lost a lot of depth. So playing in a second of a back to back certainly hurts their case. But I mean, it's been happening all year where it's right. not just that one kind of example you can pick from. And I mean, while you're talking, I was just putting up their cap friendly page and. I mean, first off, Ottawa has their first round pick this year. Ooh. And the thirtieth and thirty first ranked teams right now, I think, are, are Ottawa and San Jose. So that's oh. that's that's uh an interesting little subplot. I I, I don't think either of us are expecting San Jose to finish thirtieth, but what a hilarious sort that'd be of fitting reverse, considering right. what had happened with, <laughs> with the, the Bone Byron pick, yeah. But like with Vlasic, Burns, Carlson, they owe those guys. 27 million combined for at least six more seasons. And those guys are all going to be in their mid thirties. You know, they still have five more years on Martin Jones at 5.75. The contracts they gave, especially Couture, like eight years as for a 30 year old, I understand he's their captain, but um, you know, with him and Kane, like they have so much money tied up in guys who either have a lot of miles or on the wrong side of 30. And, and they're in a tough spot where I think we sort of penciled them in to be a lock in the Pacific because of how talented they are, because of the names they have, because of how they look last year, quite frankly, where they were the best possession team in the league. And that hasn't been the case. So it's like watching them, basically they still have the same defensive flaws and the same goaltending issues, but they just offensively are a shell of what they were. And you put that all together and you have the 30th ranked team. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it's not as if this is, you know, a low save percentage binge that they're on. That's no, it's not going to get better. 
Right, right, yeah. right. Like their their underlying performance and small sample yet, but their underlying performance. They need to play like they played against Winnipeg every game. And, you know, based on what we saw the very next game against Vancouver, it's an open question as to whether or not they have it. Uh, you know, I'm 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 not saying goodbye to the Sharks as a relevant team in the Pacific yet. You know, I'm not penciling that pick into the lottery yet for Ottawa, yeah. but uh, you know, there's certainly enough red flags, enough cause for concern that um, there'll be a club to monitor closely over November because they're either going to figure this out in a significant way over the next three weeks yeah. or it's going to be dramatic. Yeah, I will say they do look old and slow, which is a bad formula in today's NHL. Um, yeah. So back to the Canucks here. Let's let's keep this pro-Canucks podcast. I wonder I wonder what the people who think that I'm overly critical of this <laughs> team are going to yeah. uh, sort of poke fun at. But... The third-ranked offense behind only the Capitals and the Predators. Yep, they have the sixth highest shot volume. They're shooting. They're getting thirty-four pucks on net per game. Yeah, uh, they're up. So they were twenty-first in five-on-five pace last year. They're up to eighth now, and I think that's not even telling the full story because there's teams like Ottawa, New York, and Chicago ahead of them who are high in pace just because they're so bad defensively that right. they're just giving it all up. They're not actually playing fast. Um, they're beating up the teams as we said that they should beat up in a very substantial way. Uh, their third rank penalty kill, thirteenth rank power play. I think, you know, I was showing you this clip against the Sharks um, from their game on over the weekend, and the eye test checks out for me with this team where they're kind of doing what Vegas took the world, took the hockey world by storm with, which is like this like relentless forecheck that just creates so much offense from defense. Which leads me to believe that there's a certain level of sustainability with this, even when the shooting percentage comes down, even if there are injuries where. If you're just that suffocating in the neutral zone where like you're just constantly bringing it back in, um, you can keep winning games just because the volume is going to be there to compensate for whatever percentage struggles you might have. Yeah, and you know, they're – yeah, this is, this is across the board, right? Like they are top five by most volume-based metrics, yeah. uh, you know, at even strength and their power play is sort of on the fringes of the top ten by most yeah. sort of – indicators but that includes a large sample where alex edler was still on pp1 right and once you put sort of quinn hughes's on ice numbers i mean the canucks are generating 76 shots per per hour with quinn hughes on the ice on the power play i mean that would be literally unrivaled in the nhl so the you know they there's reason to believe they could improve there yeah and you know the shift that you're talking about against San Jose, I mean, that was a shift where the Canucks had Brandon Sutter, Josh Levo, and Jake Vertanen on the ice. Uh, you know, so they were looking like that with... Against Burns and Couture. Against Burns and Couture. Yeah, yeah they were looking like that with uh, pretty clear supporting pieces on the ice. And, you know, uh, if that. Yeah. <laughs> you could yeah, say worse fair. things about yeah. those yes, forwards. Yes, of course. And, These uh, guys are NHL players. The, hmm? They're NHL players. They're NHL players, yeah. right, yeah. And and Levo and Sutter actually might have something weird going on that makes them effective. But, mm. you know, we'll have to sort of see if that plays out as the sample expands. Anyway, I'm not sure that the Canucks' high-end goaltending is going to last based on what we've seen from Markstrom and Demko. Yep. Uh, all of the indicators that I look at show that they are, at best, an average defensive team. Yes. But in terms of what part of the Canucks' early season performance do I buy the most – it's that offensive game, yep. and uh, I think that's gonna. I think that's sustainable. Not maybe to this ridiculous like score five or more goals in seven of their last eleven games, sort of right. But 
I do think that there's something real going on in terms of this club having the skill to fill the net and throttle weaker teams and force teams to be on their game when they play them, uh, lest they see three pucks or four pucks sort of behind them and the red light flashing. So, you know, that is the part of the Canucks game that I do believe the mo- believe in the most. Uh, and, you know, I think that's a really good thing for a club in a market like Vancouver that is, you know, become a Raptors city, become a Seahawks city, <laughs> become a Blue Jays city since they last were yep. a Canucks city. Uh, you know, not, uh, goals and wins sell. And uh, certainly the Canucks are producing both in the early going this season well one of those big driving forces and we've rarely we've hardly brought up his name 45 minutes into the show is quinn hughes and right. just the the poise he plays with the sort of offensive instincts and awareness and sort of stuff he tries to do it's like it's i know him and kill mccarr are going to be kind of lumped together because like they similarly they're coming into the league at the same time they're in the same calder discussion like they do a lot of things on the ice in a very mm-hmm. similar ways. Uh, but it really does sort of hold true to form for me. Just watching like there was that one goal, I believe I think Besser scored it um, against the Capitals where Hughes like fakes, like he's going to do the draw pass and yes. he brings it in himself and like goes all the way down and then creates something out of nothing. And like stuff like that. I mean, for a young defenseman to be doing that and to be empowered and, and credit to Travis Green as well for like, not if he messes that up, like he's not just going like, to staple him to the bench and, and, and put him in the press box the next game. Like for them to, whether it's by necessity or by design to allow him to do that is one thing. And then for his ability to execute that is like, it's so fun to watch. He's an unbelievably deceptive skater and he does all sorts of weird things to throw players off yeah. just in terms of what he does with his skates and with his hips. And he's not, I don't think he's super aware of it hmm. because you know, there was a Canucks player telling me the other day about how they've noticed Quinn sort of starts to do moves by sort of faking forwards out with his hips even before he gets the puck and how you know for most players a coach would hate to see their defenseman do that but for Hughes everyone sort of understands that he can pull it off and I went to to Hughes to talk about it uh, or just get his sort of perspective on it and he uh, he point blank was like no I don't think I do that and I was like no you do that like here's clips and then uh, and then literally Troy Stetcher intervened and was like this is what he means Quinn and Quinn was like, "Oh yeah, I guess I do that a bit." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think in Hughes's case, you know, Hughes comes from this hockey family where obviously his brother was a high end player. Uh, you know, his dad is involved in the game. His younger, his you know, youngest brother is likely to be a top pick. I think they've spent so much time watching and playing hockey at high levels. You know, in Toronto and then with the U.S. National Development Team, and you know, I think there's things that he knows that he doesn't even know he knows like yeah. i don't even think he whereas pd i think is a little bit more aware that he right. more calculated more more calculated i think quinn just has this sixth sense this this crazy awareness that's natural organic for him and yeah no the the drop pass goal that you bring up is a really good example and and i think it's a really good example because it was he did not telegraph yeah. the drop with his hands or even with his feet he did it entirely with his pace, right? Like it was just a pace change and he slowed down to make it seem like, you know, the moment the Capitals defenders bit, he was out wide and, and he was out wide in a way that made it look like he didn't even have to break a sweat to sort of be ahead of the rush. Uh, I think that's a really good play to isolate because I think that's a perfect sort of encapsulation of, you know, how deceptive he is and how simply he manages to be deceptive. He's not selling it that hard. But you know what? Credit to Travis Green in this as well, because last year he took a lot of flack for uh, 
a team that was like basically a best described as like a skeleton crew. I mean, <laughs> like yes. Ben Hutton was their second in terms of five on five usage. Ben Hutton was second. Alex Biega was fourth. Eric Goodbranson was seventh. Derek Puglia was ninth. Michael Delzato was Stanley Cup champion. Michael Delzato was tenth. Right. Um, and there's like only so much you could do when like th- that's the personnel you have now. I certainly have time for the argument that they didn't squeeze the most out of other guys, and maybe like there was some questionable lineup decisions. But this year, what I love to see from them, and what I think they should be doing, and what credit to them for doing it, is the usage, especially in terms of their skilled players. Where I don't know if you've noticed this, but Elias Pettersson's usage in terms of how he's being deployed is like Henrik Sedin slash like Cody Hodgson yeah. levels of like trying to squeeze the most out of your offensive talent where Cody Hodgson. Wow. Well, well, but Coho reference. No, well, I, I Cody know exactly Hodgson what you was mean. was sort of like the test case for them trying to squeeze the most value totally. out of him and sell him. Right. Yep. In terms of, no, I just, I just love the, I just yeah. love the deep cut, but I, I have this stat for you. He started one out of his 235 five-on-five shifts in the defensive zone. Now, Travis Green will quibble with that because I actually brought this up to him, and Travis Green says that they missed one in Edmonton. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, so, two so he out says, of, two he, out says, he, says he says they, he thinks they've missed a couple. Yeah. <laughs> um, but him and Hughes are right up there. I think uh, Keith Yandel and Tori Krug are the only defensemen who have a higher sort of slanted uh, offensive zone start percentage than, than Hughes does so far. And, you know, a lot of the game is played on the fly and there's only so mm-hmm. much you can do in terms of managing that. But in terms of like, if you have a draw in the offensive zone versus defensive zone, I guess when you have Jay Beagle and Bo Horvat and Brandon Sutter, you can afford to give those guys those minutes totally. and then allow Elias Pettersson to do what he does best, which is just wreck havoc with the puck. Absolutely. The, the So, you know, if Green has this habit of making guys earn PP one time, right? Like mm-hmm. the one thing you're not gifted under green is pp time right like it took brock besser six weeks to earn his way on the connects right. the first unit connects power play and that team scored like i think 60 goals over the course of a full season that yeah. year something like that uh the obviously i'm joking the but the you know Pedersen in year one right travis moved him to the center which was a pretty big gamble considering Pedersen weighed something like 160 pounds soaking wet yeah and stuck with it and took his lumps and it worked out and paid off the Canucks entered this season and sort of didn't put Hughes on to PP1 despite kind of telegraphing that they might. Uh, you know, I think a big preseason game in Abbotsford maybe dissuaded them from the the wiser, the most obvious course of action anyway. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, credit to them, though. They gave him run right off the bat. Like, he led the team in even strength ice time in their opening game of the season, right? They have given him every opportunity to cement himself as a top four player for this team. And, uh, you know, he's earned that. He is clearly one of their four yes. best. Uh, well, you know, and this is the other thing. Like, I talk a lot about this to, you know, uh, some Canucks bloggers and, and Harmon Dial at the, at the Athletic. But the story is not Quinn Hughes is the best Canucks defenseman in terms of his on-ice results, right? Like, that's not the story for me. The story is where is Hughes league-wide because mm-hmm. – He's already having, I mean, we're talking about a defenseman who, you know, the power play goes from better than Boston to Ottawa when he's not in the lineup, right? right? And he's second among NHLD, I think it's 25 minutes as a cutoff uh, on the power play in in individual points, right? Uh, You know, he's, people used to comment about his shot maybe not being good, but he's got a howitzer now, I Mm -hmm. mean, a genuine missile. 
And when he's playing on the power play, he opens up all these different rotations and he opens up some of the unpredictability and flexibility that we've yep. seen from Pedersen. And, you know, he's also good enough in terms of his stick on puck defensive game uh, that he can genuinely log a regular shift in an NHL top four. And he only just turned 20 years old. I mean, it's been a pretty remarkable showing from him. And, and to top it all off, he's extremely fun to watch and again i mean for the canucks i do think that's such an important bottom line like playoffs or not if they can be relevant all season and fun to watch all season that's you know i mean you and i live locally so we sort of have a better understanding of it but the you know the the test of is the sound on at at the pint when the canucks game's on right like that's sort of where they need to be and um you know what 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 we've seen from Pedersen in his sophomore season, what we've seen from Hughes, or sorry, yeah, from Hughes in his rookie season, that's you know so important to this team in this market. Yeah, there's a national relevance where I've had even people who I, I assume aren't even Canucks fans, where it's like I tweet something out like you know the Canucks a chart of teams how often they're leading in these games, and Canucks right. are like fourth behind like Washington and Boston and Vegas. And someone's just like, it's weird seeing the Canucks not at the bottom of this list, right? Right. And, and there's like a certain element of that where it's like they're just not a joke anymore which is goes a long way towards building credibility how big a deal the hughes injury was right like it was one of the leading items on headlines on hockey night in canada between games you know i watched it with the sound off but you know just to see that sort of relevance i mean that was that's been unheard of in in this market since tortorella tried to fight bob harley I was I was at the uh, at the game that time Uh, (laughs) not in the hallway but um so Let's do a little bit of the caveats then. We've kind of been yeah. tangentially referring to the schedule. We already sort of yeah. hammered that home. We'll certainly, in November, we're going to find out much more about the yes. credibility of this team. I think health is a big thing. Um, you know, Huge. we've already seen Hughes go down a bit, although thankfully it doesn't look like it's a serious thing. But, you know, with Tanev and sort of his propensity to just like have no regard for his body when he throws himself <laughs> again, trying to block shots. Yeah. Edler, like these guys are just going to, we know that they're probably going to miss between 10 and 20 games because the past three or four years have indicated that they always do. And so that's going to be an issue. It's going to test this team's depth. Um, you know, they're not relying on Michael Delzato and Eric Branson and Alex Biega, but once you start getting into your eighth, ninth, 10th defenseman, yeah. your Oscar Fanbergs, it's your much Ashton more Saunders. difficult yeah. to try to sort of piece it together. And so there's an element of that. I think the goaltending, which we alluded to their fifth overall in save percentage, 11th to five on five, um, even though Markstrom is doing this for, if you include the past like 20, 25 games of last year, yep. um, I still don't think they're him and Demko are like top five in terms of goalie tandems, which they've been so far. So that's concerning. And, and the team's just overall shooting percentage, right? Like it's, yes. I mean, Brandon Sutter's on ice shooting percentage is not going to end the year at 13.5. Well, they're fourth in PDO at five on five, third overall. And it's yep. mostly due to the fact that their shooting percentage is in the top five. And you're right. I mean, it, while it's great to be getting five goals from Brandon Sutter, four from uh, Schaller, four from Vertanen, we don't expect that to like prorate that over each 15-game sample to, for those guys to be scoring that much. And so once those come down a bit, it's going to be certainly testing the team's volume. And if they're playing tougher teams and they don't have that same volume, that's when this becomes like a really interesting discussion in terms of whether they can piece together enough to win these games. But that's going to be the fun part to watch this then because they've done like the easy part now and now comes the actual test. Yeah. And you know, their PK save percentage, yeah. for example, right? Like yeah, the yeah. Canucks have an elite PK right now, but it's mostly, they're just stopping the puck. Yeah. It's yeah. mostly goaltending. And, and I mean, I, I do think they're tough to enter 
against. Like, mm-hmm. I do think they're doing a really good job pressuring entries, but they're pretty passive in zone. And, um, you know, a lot of that success is, is goaltending. And, and by the way, if you ask the likes of Jay Beagle, they'll tell you that right off the bat. They're yeah. oh, getting great goaltending. <laughs> so, you know, they feel it. Yeah. The, you know, I think there's a lot of things, a lot of areas where the Canucks will regress. Brandon Sutter's shooting percentage foremost among them yeah uh but you know okay, i need to talk to you about this yeah so the game against anaheim i don't know what the actual official scoring was but i was watching this at a bar yeah and i've never actually seen this before i don't think so adam godet gets called up and he plays in that game right sure. and there was this weird bounce where the puck seemed to go i don't know who it went off of but it basically like ricocheted into the net past john gibson that was the yeah. only way the canucks were able to beat gibson that right night. and brandon zutter took credit for a goal that i don't think he scored in terms of in terms of he's celebrating like so when it went in he kind of like acted as if he scored and then he quickly went as the first guy to the bench to get the taps on the gloves from his teammates right which I thought was a wild move because but you saw Adam they Gaudet credited just came in they credited him with the goal but I that, don't think he actually scored I've wa- okay. I watched it like twenty but they times changed, they changed the credit for it on Sunday so they gave it to him they did give it to him uh, uh, belatedly. I just, I just thought I, was I like, asked him post game. I he guess said, that he doesn't score that much, but I asked him post game and he said he hadn't, didn't think he hit it. Mm-hmm. But I think he probably did think he. Hit. I think he felt kind of ashamed for trying to steal a goal from a guy <laughs> from who a really was playing his first game. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily Godet got another he one did, the yeah. next day, An- another sort of lucky one. Yeah. So then maybe he felt. Well, that's that type of veteran leadership that Brendan said. <laughs> I love it. I no, love look, it. Uh, you know, <laughs> that was funny, man. <laughs> I'm trying to get you in trouble I, I, here. <laughs> no, I genuinely asked him, right? Like I genuinely asked him post game about this exact thing. Yeah. And he told me I didn't. I, I don't think I touched it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I think you think you touched it. Yeah. <laughs> he was fired but, off of. But you know what? That whole shift leading up to that goal, yep. like if you watch that whole shift again, my favorite part about that shift is it, it started with the Canucks' second power play unit, which includes Josh Levo as the left defenseman. So on mm. his weak side as a D, yeah. um, you know, stuck on the ice following an icing, right? So the Canucks win and Silverberg gets a quality chance right off the draw. Really good set play from Akins and the Ducks. Mm-hmm. And the Canucks gather and Brandon Sutter goes to skate behind the net and he drops it, except all three of the players, like the left, he drops it to the left D side, but the left D is a right winger who is skating (laughs) full speed toward the bench to get Jamie Ben on the ice, right? Jordy Ben. Jordy Ben, excuse me. And all the other, and all the other forwards have already left the zone. So there's like this awkward moment and the Canucks turn it over twice before they finally get the puck out. And then it comes the other way and they score. It's the weirdest goal scoring play of the year. Um, especially because, the breakout prior to it was probably like the most yakety sacks worthy breakout that you'll see in the entire NHL this season. Yeah. And I guess that's a reason to be slightly skeptical about this team because (laughs) it does feel like there's been a lot of that. Now, if you constantly have the puck in the offensive zone and you're shooting everything on net, totally that tends to happen for teams to do that. So, and let's not forget that the Bo Horvat, you know, Bo Horvat and his revolving cast of wingers, right. Uh, Pearson being sort of the only mainstay, you know, they've been sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Their shooting percentage is about the 6% range. Right. Bo Horvat has one even strength goal this season, and it wasn't really an even strength goal. It's just sort of a scoring technicality because he put that, you know, five on three goal against St. Louis a couple weeks ago in just as the penalties yeah. expired. So, you know, that's his only five on five goal of the season. And, you know, they're controlling play too. They're they're the matchup line and they're at fifty five percent shot attempt share and 
uh, doing pretty well on the shot clock and on and on, but they've just had no bounces. So, you know, the first line is a 65% Corsi line. So if that continues, they're going to be able to withstand the forces of regression and remain productive. The Bo Horvat line, they should actually be more productive going forward, which will help offset some of the losses. You're definitely going to have some losses from that Brandon Sutter line, though, you know, with how he's played with Levo over the past week. Uh, certainly, if the Canucks find a third line that isn't a disaster, hmm. that changes the overall my overall projection for this team. Because I thought, well, you know, they should be better, but they're still a wasteland, league worst maybe on the third line. If that equation changes, that's when the Canucks can really cook with gas. Um, and then, and then, you know, I think they probably, especially if Hughes isn't injured too significantly here and if he stays durable i actually think their power play should be better Mm. uh over the sort of latter 70-ish games of the season uh than it has been to this point so you know looking at a team's overall regression profile here i see a lot of reasons to be optimistic uh over on the whole that you know some of what we've seen from them offensively will last even as you know some of their two-way game maybe atrophies a bit uh, and their goaltending luck changes somewhat I'm putting a pin in this. I think I'm I'm full on wait and see. Like I'm in, I'm eyebrow raised, interested. They have my attention. <laughs> I want to see where this goes. Certainly, we're gonna we're gonna see that in November with the schedule that's coming up for them that we talked about a bunch of times. And it's gonna be. I mean, there's there's that relevance where like I will and people will be tuning in to see yeah. how they look against St. Louis, against Nashville, against Vegas, and. That's uh that's a massive departure from the past couple of years. So I guess that's what a, a nine three and two star does for you, right? Absolutely, and it and it gives you that cushion too, yeah. right? They're not quite there, but say they are able to, you know, take something. Don't like, cite Elliot Friedman's Thanksgiving. Stuff. No, no, no. I I have no time for that. The but say they're able to take six of six points from the next four, which yep. is Chicago, New Jersey, uh, Winnipeg, and St. Louis, yep. right? Say they're able to take six of their next four points. You know, then if they're looking at a situation where there's something like 12, 4, and and 2, yep. or, you know, uh, alternatively 10, 4, and 4, yeah. they are looking at a situation where they can play 500 hockey right. and, and probably make the playoffs. And so, you know, banking these points early is, is really important, even though uh, we've seen teams come back at a rate which makes the American Thanksgiving sort of barometer a little bit less relevant, or, or at least has made the, that barometer a little less relevant over the past couple seasons. Well, there you go, Canucks Reddit. Eat your heart out. <laughs> it gave you, gave you one hour of overwhelmingly positive Canucks talk. Um, Tom, plug some stuff. What uh, what can people expect from you? Where can they check out your work? Absolutely. So uh, obviously they can check me out at theathletic.com uh, slash Vancouver mm-hmm. slash Canucks or, or just follow my author tag. Uh, wrote a piece today actually about the sustainability of Vancouver's overall offensive push early in the season. Uh, we've hashed out a lot of that here, but if you want to go back and sort of get some get granular on why Vancouver might continue to be an elite offensive team. You can do that there. Uh, additionally, we've got some good stuff this week coming on the Myers-Edler pair on uh, Brock Besser's overall sort of machine-like scoring ability and, mm. and the persistence of his high shot rate. And then this weekend, I'm actually going to see the Utica Comets play back-to-back games. So wow. look for some in-depth Ole Olevi content coming your way uh, for the VIPs. Uh, additionally, check out the Nuxcast with Jay Patton Dran- Answer, uh, available wherever you get your podcasts. Wow. 
You had that all teed up. You're ready, <laughs> you're ready to go. Right, this is why you're a professional. Man. Yeah, the, got it down. This was a blast. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, hosting the PDO cast. And I'm excited <laughs> to uh, to see how this goes. And, and I'm sure we'll check back in with you at some point, whether it's uh, this as a team proving that October was for real and they should be considered a contender or whether they come back down to earth and we have to recalibrate. There's going to be reason to talk. And that's uh, that's exciting living here in Vancouver. Yeah, anytime, my guy. Always a good time. Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.